travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody wang chung tonight. The movies. I'll have what she's having. And the parties. No one in my family ever drinks. That's great. You probably never run out of ice your whole life. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. I did my best, but I guess my best wasn't <laughs> Jesus. Spearsy, are, are you crying? No. It sure sounds like you are. James Ingram comes on and you melt like a pair of wax lips on the 4th of July. It's just, just so sad. What, what, the song? No, what Karen does to Gary at the end of Last American Virgin. Oh, Lord. Are you watching that again? Well, it just turned 40 years old, and I really haven't had a good cry since the second episode of Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. Oh, look, nerd. I can't help you there. You realize we're sponsored by the 80s cruise, not the Star Trek cruise, right? Well, can't we have both? Uh, No. No, sir. We cannot. Would it help if I could get you someone to talk this whole thing through with? No, no one can help. Not even Diane Franklin? Seriously, you can get her on the show? Make it so. I know what boys like. I know what guys want. I know what boys like. I got what boys like. I know what boys like. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your old pal Spearsy. And Brad in L.A. And today, as promised, we have an amazing chat with an actress who played some of the most beloved roles in the 80s. And one of the most loathsome roles. It's our interview with Diane Franklin. No, you've been a true friend. I can't think of anyone who would have done what you've done for me. Stuck in the 80s is most definitely not sponsored by the Star Trek cruise. Don't get me wrong, I like Star Trek. I'll watch me some original series anytime. Captain's Log Supplemental. And Steve adores Star Trek and would gladly go on the Star Trek cruise if it weren't the very week before. The 80s Cruise! Yes, our true North Star. Join us in 2023 for a week-long trip back to our beloved decade above the Royal Caribbean Navigator of the Seas. Performers will include Devo, Brett Michaels, Kim Wilde, The Church, Howard Jones, Living Color, Jody Watley, The Smithereens with guest vocalist Marshall Crenshaw, Vixen, Cutting Crew, Mid-Year, Autograph, Tone Loke, and more. And first-time guests can get $200 of cabin credit just by using the promo code STUCKWHENBOOKING. Just head on over to www.the80scruise.com in the internet browser of your choosing for more information. Now live long and prosper. <sighs> Again, wrong cruise. www.startrekthecruise.com Stop it. What are you doing? Are you on drugs? What about the drugs? What about the drugs? They're in the kitchen. 
The Last American Virgin. Released in July of 1982, a full month before Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out. So I don't want to hear any conspiracy theories, Brad. I'm I'm okay with the lack of conspiracy theories in my life. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I think safe to say if it was 82, we would have been 15. 15 yeah. So did you see it in the theater? I don't believe I did. No, no. This was a you know HBO Cinemax special. <laughs> God bless HBO. And it was very special. <laughs> very special indeed. I, Ooh, I'm all tingly. Well, yeah. And I, I, there's a moment during my interview with uh, Diane Franklin where I tell her that she basically dragged a generation of guys into puberty, which she takes quite well. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you did that. I mean, just because it's true doesn't mean we need to talk about it with her. She seems very, very comfortable with... The formal role and the informal role that that movie played in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, which is cool, which is cool. It's nice to see people you know, embracing the work that they did. And we talk about this from time to time, how musicians really kind of, they're with their creations all the time. They're touring those songs. You know, They play them in their encores. But for a lot of actors and actresses, they do that work. And it's been, in this case, literally 40 years ago. And they're just completely separate from it. Yeah. No, not her. She embraces it. I I was curious to see how what critics thought of it at the time. So I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Last American Version has a seventy seven percent fresh rating, which wow seems that's surprisingly high. Yeah, Fast Times at Richmond High only has a seventy eight percent fresh rating. Just mm, okay, huh? And I would say I mean, there's there's these are two very different movies despite coming out within a month of each other and both having a lot of the same themes. Yeah. I mean, they just, they come at it a little differently. Yeah. One reviewer called it, quote, a barely tolerable raunchy formulaic teen comedy that turns unfashionably serious with a realistic downbeat ending, unquote. Wow. Reviewer. Nailed it. I feel, I feel like you crushed it there. Yeah, exactly. When was the last time you saw it? Did you, you watch it this week? Uh, I tried to, but I had trouble chasing down a, a watchable version. It's not streaming so, anywhere. It isn't anywhere streaming. And yes, I know, gentle listeners, you you might also think, oh, someone's probably posted it on YouTube. And somebody has, but the rip is terrible and it's really blocky and it freezes up every 20 seconds. So, you know, if that's how you want to watch your movies, knock yourself out. So it's funny. I was um, going to watch it the other night. The wife had agreed that, yeah, she... For, in, for the interest of research, we needed to rewatch it again. And I know I have it on DVD. So I pull out the case. I go downstairs. You know, it's um, Sunday night, which is always a good night for an 80s uh, sob fest. <laughs> sob fest or whatever fest it is. And I open up the DVD case. Boing, it's not there. So oh, now, no. Uh, finding a uncased DVD in the Spears Lair is no easy task. So. Somebody bogarted the Last American Virgin. Yeah. But we what we did, though, is we ordered – we found on Amazon there was a six-movie pack. And I think it had Losing It, Last American Virgin, Zapped. Wow. Oh, uh, The Sure Thing. Um, oh, I forget what – Valley Girl and – something else but it was a pretty good lineup. that's a pretty that's a pretty decent i mean for what those movies are that's a pretty good package <laughs> i mean just for zapped and valley girl zap valley girl and last american virgin i mean there you yeah. go yeah 
So I'm looking forward to I think that's supposed to arrive today, actually. So who knows what to- will happen tonight. Delightful. <laughs> I, I Cue the I, James Ingram. <laughs> I've got to, I think I think it'll be it's a double feature. I think it's gonna be Last American Virgin and and then Zapped. Or or maybe I reverse the order. I don't know. No, I do it in that order because Zapped has a more upbeat ending. Yes. Then you'll sleep better. <laughs> that's true. I sleep horrible these days. Barney um, still has his powers. Spoiler. <laughs> anyway, so Brad and I have been talking about this movie for a couple of days now, and it's funny how you you think that this movie is you know has some unique themes. Losing your virginity, at least for guys, was a popular theme in eighties movies. If you want to count them up, losing it, private lessons, my tutor, class, weird science, zapped, risky business, porkies, all cover that. Yeah, all circulate part of the plot around that particular if, if feat. You want to. <laughs> Go with girls losing their virginity, little darlings, fat times, Richmond high, sixteen candles. Yeah, you know it's funny because we talk about we were also talking about movies that have like downbeat endings, and I had a real hard time coming up with other examples, but little darlings came to mind. You know, it's been so long that I've seen it; I don't know that I remember how it ends. Well, if I remember correctly. One says she lost her virginity, but she didn't. And she's all, oh, it was wonderful. And the girl who did lose her virginity was like, it was awful. And she says she didn't. Oh. So it's like this crisscross at the end. Like, maybe this isn't everything you've been thinking it would be. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Boy, movies with sad endings in the 80s. I didn't. I didn't. Well, I mean, Sophie's Choice. Uh. Well, you know, like teen, <laughs> teen movies. Okay, teen movies. Yeah, I'm like, uh. Yeah, you come up with some sad endings. Yeah. But yeah, teen movies with down endings and not, you know, they're trying to sell tickets. They want us to have a good time. Right. You know, in in Footloose, Ren doesn't get the crap beaten out of him by the (laughs) redneck boys in the pickup truck. No, he kicks their butt, doesn't even have any dust on his tucks when he's finished. The one thing that Dinah and I talk about, we talk about how Last American Virgin is two movies in one. And we talk about how it's a little bit more maybe realistic than other teen movies at the time. And she talks about how the fact that this is a movie that was based on an Israeli movie called Lemon Popsicle, was it? I believe that's correct, yes. Which was And it was and it's directed by the guy who directed wrote directed the original. Right. As well, and, right. and that is based on his actual life. Hmm. So what I re- when I think about when I go back and I think about this movie and, I, and when I watch it again, it is definitely two movies. There is the raunchy t- teen comedy where you have guys measuring their own units, you know, in gym class. <laughs> like you had time for that. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, oh yeah, this this is a plate of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's I just the- keep it in the kitchen along with the flour and the sweet and low. <laughs> hmm. But it's also this amazing love story that ends in a very sad, but. Totally realistic ending because I mean, let's face it most most love stories ex- until you get married and you you meet your soulmate. It's it's like Tom Cruise says in, in Cocktail, all relationships end badly; otherwise, they wouldn't end. Yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, I think that's what's also interesting is that you have a female lead character, Karen, played by Diane Franklin, who was neither a her- hero nor a villain. But sort of a pawn of sorts who gravitates to whomever seems to like her most. And it's an unusual character, I think, at that time. Everyone seemed to have a more established agenda. She, Her character does not. Yeah. 
I mean, did you ever date somebody just because they expressed interest in you? I know I can think of at least one girl that I dated that I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, let's go out. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, I did. Mm, no, that didn't really work out. Okay. There was someone who liked me in high school, and I invited her to a dance. And then we went on a date, and it just, there was like no chemistry whatsoever. Yeah. And I remember I tried to weasel out of the dance. And I told her that I was grounded or something. Like I had done something horrible and I was grounded. (laughs) My mom caught me digging a hole in the backyard with a shovel. So I told the girl, so we can't go to the dance. So I feel feel like I'm out of it, right? And an hour later, my mom comes in. (laughs) This girl has had her mom call my mom to get me off the hook because they'd spent X number of (laughs) dollars on the dress. <laughs> you're like, I figured it all out this time. Oh wait, no, I didn't. Yeah, because my mom's like, "What? You're not grounded. What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "Oh, geez." I, I remember to this day, like, I can't believe I've yeah I've caught in the pinchers. <laughs> oh, what parents talk to each other? Yeah, I don't that's that's obviously you know clearly the uh, the secret weapon that parents of teenagers have is that teenagers don't realize that parents talk to each other. Yeah. So most people by now probably have seen this movie. If you if you haven't, like I said, it's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to probably buy the DVD or or maybe you can rent it. But um, Diane came on the show to talk about the 40th anniversary of the movie. We talk about her other roles, uh, what she was doing before that movie hit, what she did afterwards. We, we do spend some time on Better Off Dead. Uh, we talk about what she's doing today. It is a long conversation. <laughs> um, she is a great conversationalist. And it felt more like two people chatting over beers than it did an interview. When it's over, Brad and I will talk a little bit more about the movie's soundtrack. We'll have some quick seggies and the usual other delights. But sit back for now and enjoy this conversation with Diane Franklin. Diane Franklin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I love any um, anything having to do with the 80s. That makes me happy. I love 80s podcasts. That's funny because I, I love seeing photos of you on social media. You really get into the spirit when you interact with 80s fans at cons and conventions. And you really embrace those, those roles that we remember so much. Uh, one of the things is um, I personally love nostalgia and I feel like it takes people back in time and like you could have a really horrible day and all of a sudden you see a photo of something and you go wow like that just takes me back like I have no problems it's gone so I just and so sometimes I mean I look for really obscure things or I'll take a uh, I'll find something um I don't know like it's I'll just try different things and so uh, I appreciate you saying that because uh at a certain point I thought well is this just getting you know, I don't know. I just didn't know if it, people would be that interested anymore. But I think people even more so, you know, are interested. And, and the younger people are very interested, which is amazing. It's just so exciting, um, you know, that people are looking back and they're going, oh, like, I want to go back in time. And, oh, I've seen her in this or, you know, the, the great thing, the lucky thing I have in my career is that I've been able to do a lot of different kind of genres. So I can reach a lot of different people. I've done comedy, um, drama, TV, um, film, um, you know, teen films, um, uh, horror, um, just a wide range of things I've had. A, and a lot of people really didn't know about my career when it was actually happening. Um, so it's very exciting now for me to be able to take the time because I wouldn't have had the time when I was younger to 
to connect with people. I would have been working. I would have been getting ready to audition for something. So now I have the time to focus on people and say, thank you. So it, I wonder if that's the reason I, I noticed that um, <clears throat> a lot of the actors from that decade, for the longest time, they kind of were resistant to talking about it or they turned their back on those movies. That, but lately they seem to be coming around and there's more and more memoirs um, from actors about those days. I'm hoping that I've been a part of that because actually when I started doing conventions and when I, it was, it was so fascinating. I think I was one of the first people to do all these conventions and meeting people because in the entertainment business, conventions were always seen as the graveyard. Like that's where you go right before it's over. Right. And mm -hmm. I never saw it that way. And, and the first convention I ever was given the opportunity to go to, I was so excited to see all these actors that I grew up with. So to me, it was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Like I can sign autographs for other people, but I can then now see people that I grew up with, which to me, honestly, is the feeling I get when I do that, like see people from the past is more than money could buy. You know, it's more than it's more than going to a better, a great restaurant. Like how many times do you go out to eat, but then how often do you meet someone that you perhaps were role modeling or, uh, you know, had a crush on or, you know, just it, it, those feelings, they just take you back. So what happened was I started going to these conventions. I'm going to say now could be 20 years ago. Wow. All right. And I started going and and, uh, and by the way, it's not, it, it was weird. It's weird to go to a place and, and somebody wants your autograph. It's a very, it's, and you meet a stranger. I mean, the starting of it is very strange, but then once you have the experience and you meet people, it's a beautiful experience. So what was interesting was I started to do these conventions and then I started telling people, my friends who are actors and actresses, uh, you should go. And, and do these because you have no idea like how happy it makes people. And I just, I think it's one of the things we can do as actors to give back because we've always been on the other side of the screen. We never known how we affected people and the stories I hear and the things that people bring me are beautiful and life-changing and affect me as well. I, so I, in, in yeah. answer to your question, yes, other people, other actors are starting to do it more. They're trusting it. And then what happened, honestly, was conventions became a moneymaker. And then all of a sudden, all the, the studios uh, wanted to have a spot at a convention. And obviously, Comic-Con was huge and created a mass um, uh, 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 like almost a mass hysteria of like, you know, people wanting to go to conventions. But then when COVID hit everything pulled back again. So it's really starting to kind of ramp up again and people are a little still hesitant. Um, but all I can tell you is um, I've been to a whole bunch of conventions and I am not casual about COVID. So I've worn masks and been, um, you know, you take them on and off and uh, I've been vaccinated. <laughs> I feel like a dog, I've gotten my shots, you know? Um, so I think uh, for me, yeah, I mean, it's been a positive thing and uh, very exciting for, I think um, it's just good for me, good for you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you good do the accents. Yeah, no, I just, I went to a, I went to my first con 
a couple of months ago here in Orlando, where I live. Your first <clears throat> con? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And we got tickets to get photos with Ralph Macchio and Billy Zabka together. <clears throat> and then Nathan Fillion, uh, because I'm a huge Castle and uh, Firefly fan. But yeah. the line for to to get in and get your tickets, I mean, we think we stood there for three hours and we finally gave up. It was oh, yeah. it was a madhouse. There must have been 160,000 people there. Yeah. And you have to watch your conventions. Honestly, I think the best ones are the small ones because yes. you get more time with the person and they're more intimate. When they get huge, it's out of control. I mean, lines around the block for one person. And also by the, the time you see the actor or the person, they're so exhausted and they all can be like, they sign really fast, take a picture and it's gone. So you've been waiting for three hours and then you get like, you know, less than a minute because it's so hard. I mean, for me, I've been very fortunate because I, I don't know, just, I get, I get people, I get a constant stream, but I don't, um, I don't have those huge, huge lines, which, you know, obviously are money makers for the people involved, but uh, it, I can see why the actors are, you know, who are that big, you know, get tired. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you're doing those, I mean, people come up in character, I'm, I'm guessing that Monique is probably the most popular thing for people to dress up for when they see you. Right. Uh, you know what? Well, as far as people coming up, you know, people have asked me, and I've always been asked fans and, and people who are interested in the eighties, like, what do you think I'll be remembered as like, you know, better off dead, you know, or Amityville, even people come up to me about that. I mean, terror vision. I mean, it is such an unusual thing. I have a very wide range and better off dead uh, bill and ted's like so there are people that just know me from one thing and that's it so um although i love i uh when i asked this to my fans it kind of went 50 50 with virgin and last american virgin if you don't know the film the last american virgin and better off dead but then there are people who are horror people and they are i am amityville all the way amityville too um so I'm kind of, um, I feel like, you know, obviously people will see you uh, as they first saw you. Like the first thing they saw you in is who you are. Yeah. And uh, so some people hate me because they know me as Karen. We're going to get into that. I swear we're getting into that. They hate me. And then other people like, oh, you're, she's a Bill and Ted princess. Forget it. She's a babe. You know, like it's a whole. <laughs> um, yeah. You say that you're people are attracted to the first role they remember you. And for me, I mean, it's obviously Karen from The Last American Virgin. I mean, and I've had issues with that over the years because for the longest time, you know, you and Karen are synonymous. And I don't think that there's a character in 80s film that I have ever <laughs> been as angry about as, as Karen. So, yeah, no, I'm really I'm glad you said that because it is uh, it is a big responsibility to play Karen, especially now that Karen is a, a name too. all Karen's. Oh, I didn't think about Karen. that. Jeez. <laughs> stay away from the Karen. Um, so Virgin, uh, last American Virgin was a film that I didn't even know if it was going to get made. I mean, when actually, when we actually, um, when I got the audition, I had no idea that, I mean, at that time in the early eighties, you didn't, know if a film was going to get even on the screen that was a not a given it was there was no there was no internet I mean so it took so much for a film to get made um but when I did the part I remember saying to myself well I can bring some sweetness and real I wanted to bring Karen to make her 
um, not like predictable. I didn't want her to be the girl you saw and went, oh yeah, well, she's going to, I don't even want her with him anyway. So when I saw the film in the last few years, I was like, whoa, you do not see this coming. Oh, you don't. want, <laughs> you want Karen to be with him. And that's why it hits so hard. And uh, I remember, you know, we, all of us, Lawrence Monison, Steve Anton, and Kimmy Robertson, we all thought that Boaz was going to change the ending. We really thought that was an unfair, it wasn't, it just wasn't American ending. It wasn't a happy ending. We really just thought it was something that was, we thought, oh, this little film, you know, it's not going to matter that they change the ending. They're going to change it, right? And Boaz was adamant. No, this is not what it is. This is, this is my life. I live this way and this happened to me, so I cannot change it. And uh, just like that. And, <laughs> um, and I... I had to then figure out how am I going to make, how am I going to justify this? You know, and I really, uh, I've talked to people about it. I mean, I've said, I would not have taken, you know, I wouldn't have gone with Rick and I certainly wouldn't have gone with Rick after he got me pregnant. I wouldn't have gone back to him personally. Um, but I, but I did want to say that I, people, my reaction at the end of the film a lot of people read a lot of things into it. And I like that. I think that's good. I think that if you, if you, if it's ambiguous, it makes it more interesting. And my, my feeling is, I just think that sometimes relationships, even if you love someone, even if you deeply love someone, they cannot be, that's just life. You, you can love someone with all your heart and there's, something that's keeping you guys from being together. And I think that that for me was what was going on there. I think that my character, Karen, if, um, if you took us today, like if we grew up and, and I stayed with Rick, I think it would have been just, it's just, you know, it's like girls who stay with, a, you know, addictive, bad relationships you know, they get hurt or cheated on or something and they don't, they, they keep thinking, Oh, this, they didn't mean it. And that's also with Amityville. I, you know, even the brother relationship, which we can get into later, but it's also like, it's like that person didn't mean it. No, you know, this is not happening. This is not real. So from my perspective, I played it very real and sincere, but I know that everybody hated me. <laughs> it was just terrible. But it's, it's, it's funny because, um, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, you know, I just don't think that when, when I saw that movie, I was probably 15 years old, maybe. And I don't think I was yeah. ready for something so realistic. Like I, you know, I, yeah. I, I was, I was like three years removed from the Muppet movie, you know, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now no, it rocks your world. It yeah. rocks. I mean, and, and I have had so many guys tell me that they're they, like, it was on late at night and they saw it when they were 12. And I'm like, yeah, a movie like that will change your life. Like that's the movie you remember. Like you go, oh man, I'm not going to let that happen to me or I'm not going to be that guy or, or I didn't even know all this stuff happened, you know? Yeah. And then also like, even, I mean, frankly, for me, you know, uh, playing Karen and, you know, I had the nudity in it. And um, I think it really taught a lot of guys, a lot of things, you know, like really, <laughs> I really think it's like the sex education for guys. I mean, I've always said that and it's true. Like guys learned, they, they didn't know even maybe what a woman looked like or, uh, you know, naked or they, um, or how to treat a woman. Like it's one thing to see some, a girl like just naked, but another thing to see a love scene. Yeah. That's a different 
No, I think I, that's one of those '80s movies I thought taught. Every, yeah. Everyone that I've told that I, you know, hey, I'm, you can't believe who I'm going to talk to next week. I'm going to talk to Diane Franklin. And they're like, oh, they're like, tell her she's the one who forced me into puberty. And I'm like, oh, come on, I can't. I'm not telling her that. She's <laughs> just like, I'm like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> but, right? but, I mean, but, but you're right. I mean, yeah. I mean, no, it's true. I mean, I, think it was. I can, at that time I couldn't have had, I couldn't have talked about it like this, but now I go, no, no, no. It's like, you know, where are you going to learn? You're not, your parents are going to tell you, you know, show you, no. you know, it's you've got to learn. <laughs> and the thing about Virgin, I've always found really amazing. And this is why people, I think still watch it today. Like, okay. If you told me at that time, people are going to watch this film today. I would have said, how is that even real? How is that possible? Right. But it's a, for so many reasons, it's a, it's a human story. It never goes away, whether it's today or a hundred years from now, p- humans will be acting the same. They will have the same problems and same dilemma and it will connect. Obviously the ending will never go. It'll never go away. Cause it's not candy, uh, you know, cut cookie cutter. So that's another thing. Um, it's a time capsule for the eighties which is great. So if you don't know anything about the eighties, all of a sudden you're smack in the world of a teenager in during that time um, in the darker world. I mean, in a, in a world, let's say more realistic, like I look at fast times sometimes and I go, I loved fast times, but that was very American in a way. Like it was comic book almost. Yeah. It was, it was, it was cute. Like it's cute to be an American, you know, but this was a little bit more, uh, it was more real gritty and like, it was the, like the part of like, I think teenagers, the exploring, like, what if I did this? And that's why when you watch it, it's like, you get to explore the parts of life that maybe you were thinking about, or maybe, you know, you're curious about. I mean, like everything from the crabs and the whole, you know, the prostitute and the whole thing. It's like, yeah, like don't think people don't explore or think about those things or want those experiences. And if you get that heads up on it, you're like, oh, like I'm sure so many guys were like aware of crabs, you know, from that movie if they had not even heard about it. Right. Yeah. Um, But the other thing I wanted to say was (laughs) that people will watch that movie. Young guys will watch it and what I love about it is that movie lures you in with the sex. Okay. So like you hear it's a teen sex movie and you're thinking, Oh yeah, this is like a, you know, you know, it's going to be fun and make titillating. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're going to have, you know, have a great time watching this. And then they learn about love. And if you have not, um, if, if you had sold the movie that it was like a love story gone wrong, no guy would have seen it. So I think it's one of the smartest, films because it it I don't think I've ever seen I mean I remember that distinctly it was two different tones but I think it's so smart that Boaz was able to create the story where it brought guys in but then they learned something and they may not have ever learned yeah did he share that that vision with you with the with the cast at all did he kind of say here's what I'm trying to do with this movie I'm trying to tell two stories Oh, no, no. I think this this was Boaz's life. So I think it kind of how he saw life. I think Boaz, as far as I could see, uh, first of all, he was Boaz is a. A very sweet, deep. But also very humble person. And I think when he wrote this story, it was based on his life. Obviously, oh, this is a movie that's a remake, for those of you who don't know, of, a, of another film called Lemon Popsicle. 
And that was made, um, took place in the 1950s. Last American Virgin takes place in the 1980s. And the other thing I wanted to say was that, um, so this actually happened to Boaz. So all the things that happened with the crabs and the prostitutes and all that, he experienced that. So I think there's a part of him that goes, boys will be boys and this is what life is like. But then there's a place which gets serious. And I think that was, I don't think he, he did, it wasn't an intellectual thing. It was an emotional thing. I think he connected to the story emotionally and that's why it works for us as an audience. Did you ever get the impression, did you ever hear from him after the movie came out? Was he, was he happy that it, it did? Was he happy with the, with the final result? Did it express, um, did he find it cathartic in any way? You know, I, I, I've only heard positive things. Um, I don't think I, I don't know if I asked him personally, but at the last screening, I did see his daughter. She came to the screening because Boaz couldn't. And it was a screening at uh, American Cinematique. And Lawrence Monison and I were there to answer questions, Q&A. Um, and so his daughter came and that meant so much to Lawrence and I. That, it, because that meant that the film still means something to him and he would have loved to have come, but he, you know, I think he was afraid with the COVID going on that that's not a good idea. Um, but his daughter came and she was lovely. And it's amazing to see in her eyes how much this film has affected her family. Like, you know, and by the way, Boaz directed it and wrote it, but his wife, Ruia, um, she edited it. So it was a very family film. It was a very connected um, film. It meant a lot, I think, to that family. And it was his, I think it was his first American film, maybe. I'm not sure, but it was, I mean, after that, he moved on to other things. Um, and I know that there were plans to make sequels because in Lemon Popsicle in Israel, there were many sequels. I mean, I don't even know how many, like eight or so. I have no idea. He just, but with us, Last American Virgin, that was the only one. And I don't know why. Um, maybe it was because in maybe Israel, maybe they're a little bit freer with those teen films, you know, maybe the nudity of the subject matter. But here maybe it was, it was big, but it wasn't, Maybe maybe had resistance from people to show it in theaters. I don't know. I don't know. It's because yeah. it, it definitely pushes people's buttons. I mean, people actually some people just left the theater in the middle of it because it tackles, you know, issues like abortion and it tackles, uh, you know, uh, there's cocaine and reference to cocaine and there's drinking, uh, uh, drinking. But the this main thing about this film is that teenagers act like adults. They don't, you don't barely see the parents and that the kids have to make adult decisions. And again, that brings us back to a feeling of when you're a kid and something happens to you, do you tell your parents or do you take it on? And during the eighties and the early eighties, kids took it on. They took it on. We, you know, you just, you know, it's your problem. You're not going to get rescued. You're not going to do it. You have to deal with it. You'd go to your friends or whatever. That it was a different world. So, um, I think that's another thing that might be shocking to people who see it today. Yeah. You know? I, I agree with what you're saying earlier too, about how it, when you see your character in it and you and you and it plays out, it, it's not what she does. Isn't quite as telegraphed as, as teen movies you see today. I mean, I, I read in your book that you describe your role as having um, 
no center, no self, no identity, but rather you gravitate to whoever is nicer in the moment, like a feather in the wind. And it wasn't until I read that and then went back and saw the movie that I'm like, that's exactly what your character is doing. And it's just so, it was so, I think, unusual for us to see something so realistic and not predictable. And, and how many girls are like this? I, I mean, for me, I, there are so many girls who are very young and they don't know who they are yet. They only know who they are based on the people who are around them. So if somebody likes them, then they gravitate to them. I mean, and this could even be friends. You can just, you can have a friend like somebody like you and suddenly you're like, oh, I'm their friend. And that and I, you bring out a certain part of your personality so that you can, you know, relate to them, but that might not be who you are. Um, I actually have an interesting thing happening right now. I have students, um, I teach and I have some, I teach uh, acting to kids and I do, um, uh, right now I'm doing, I I usually teach, like I can teach K through eighth. This particular program right now I'm doing is three to uh, eighth. And I also teach like professional actors one-on-one and, um, and I had all kinds of teaching. I do improv and, and, um, scene study and voice work and all this stuff. So um, dialects too. Um, but I have this one girl and she is, she has friends. She is a sixth grader or seventh grader, seventh grader. This is the height of socialization in middle school, seventh grade. I mean, eighth grade is like, it's, it's, you're just right there. Like your friends are the most important at that age. And she and her friends are very tight. And they talk all the time and they're very close. And one girl um, loses her, she's very talented, but she loses herself and her friends completely. Like when her friends are around, she completely loses her identity and she becomes like just one of those girls. And she actually stops being her own person. And then there was this other girl, she is, uh, doesn't have a sense of who she is yet. Um, so she's the one who lat- latches on. She's like the third person in the wheel. But the second girl is fascinating because this is a girl that I didn't see her identity until I started teaching her. And then she was able to say no to her friends. Like she's going to do her own thing. Like she was able to hang out with them, but then she would be like, no, I'm, I got to go do, I'm going to go do this thing. Or, you know, I, I saw her become her own person. And I went, wow, like there's an example of, you know, where Karen is just, she just goes from person to person. You just, there's a time in life where, whether you're younger or older, you have to decide if it's your life or if you're going to just follow other people in, in their life. And, and um, I felt like Karen was never, she never had her own center. You know, she had a friend and she, but she was, you know, she was popular almost by default. You know, she's pretty like in the sense, you know, she was just a reflection of everything. And she's like, oh, okay, okay, fine, whatever. You know, her friend Rose is, you know, Rose has more of a sense of herself, you know, to me. So um, more identity. Um, But Karen was more like, if you like me, okay, I'll just go to you. And whoever's, whoever's in front of me, um, whoever wants me the most. But I, I mean, the other thing too about she, it came from her thing comes from insecurity, not from ego. And I think a lot of times people think really pretty girls are into their ego, but when you have a strong ego, it means you're very insecure. Do you know what mm. I'm saying? Mm. I mean, that, that translates. Like if somebody's like, oh, well, I'm all that they're massively insecure, 
because if someone's really secured, they don't need to go. Oh, look at that. Right. Look, <laughs> right. So. The, the one thing about this movie that I always remember is <clears throat> it will forever ruin the song just once by James Ingram. For me. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. <sighs> oh, this, my gosh. It's, I, I, that's so many times in the movie. I didn't even realize it until I just recently saw it and I went and the audience even went, oh, my God. I mean, you hear those. Oh. You hear the piano and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, that's to this day thank you for I, mentioning that that's funny well even when we when i did that i think when we when i did the breakup podcast one time on stuck in Asia, i think we ended with we either started with it or ended with that song or or both because it's just it is iconic for yeah. for its appearance in that movie i mean it's an amazing soundtrack i mean just start <gasps> oh to my finish god. but my god i mean you, you say that song and everybody goes last american virgin yeah like you hear it on the radio I, absolutely it, yeah. it is interesting uh that's the other thing too that film was the first film that used teen uh, popular teen music as a soundtrack it wasn't a thing it was the first and we were so lucky i mean boaz i don't even know how we did it was so lucky to get all those musicians because it wasn't uh, you know normal usual after that everybody started you know saying okay let's find our favorite band and you know pay them and see if we could do it but it was brilliant i think it helped everyone you know it really yeah. was a brilliant idea it was helped a lot of artists you know and so it made me very happy that um now if i hear music like that i go oh there it is <laughs> there's the song yeah. what's happening now or um I know what boys like. I know, you know, like the I think party since, you're, since you're gone by the cars, uh, yeah. better luck next time. Boingo, boingo. Right. There's, there's these little messages that are sprinkled in there. And I remember even at the time, I'm like, I, I don't even know who these musicians are. It's only when I went back, you know, 20 years afterwards. And when I was like, oh, my yeah. God, that's Oingo boingo. Holy crap. You just all these bands I just had never been exposed to at that point yeah. in my life. Um, so contrast contrast karen it's like exam for your for your chemistry right. exam at nyu right contrast uh, karen with monique from better off dead i mean that this is almost like the evolution of karen this is like the like the better version like the, the, what you were talking about before someone who is confident in her individuality thank you so much for noticing that because that was a very big thought in my head at the time as an actress because it was, I, okay, before I did Virgin, I was cast in a soap opera um, as a bad girl. And like, I was the girl who was influencing the good girl and um, getting her to take, like hide her birth control pills in her shoes. And it was like a whole thing. And I never understood why they hired me as a bad girl because I was a good girl. I was always like, a good girl. And that's like, I know that was just kind of my thing. Like I wasn't, I like, I remember, you know, I, I mean, meaning like I didn't do drugs or take, I mean, I just was more innocent that way. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't uh judgmental. It was just like, I just wasn't that. So, but I kept getting cast as the bad girl. So I was like, what's up with that? And then with Karen, I was like, what is up with this? Why? And um, I realized later that People were trying to cast me, find a way to cast me, but it was because um, I was, um, you know, like they saw me as being pretty. I'm not even going to say I never really saw myself as pretty, but they did. And because of that, 
at the time casting would always try to go, oh, well, we can't make the pretty, we have to push her to the pretty girl and then we're going to have to make her the bad girl, you know? And I was like, I didn't understand that emotionally. So um, by, I always felt like that wasn't who I was like center, you know, but whatever you want to get roles, you play all these different characters. And I am very committed. And I'm, you know, I played like, I played an evil girl, an evil babysitter in a movie called summer girl. I mean, Mm -hmm. now that I'm thinking about a lot of bad girls, (laughs) like, wait a minute. Um, But, um, and weren't you almost, you were almost the bad girl in better off dead because weren't, weren't you originally up for the part of Beth? Yes. Um, Originally Savage wanted me he looked at me for the role of Beth because he saw That's, in Last American Virgin. And so now I get that. I go, oh, wow. Now I see what you were seeing, that you saw me as the like the pretty girl, the nice girl who would have dumped Lane. So, but when I went into that audition, I came in so strong as Monique, so strong. Like I, again, that is a, the fact that you even brought this up. I came in there because I bonded with Monique emotionally. And so I, he was shocked. I think they were all shocked that I would want to play this character that I could play it. So um, I remember Savage really struggling. He was like, we got to make you really like, um, you know, really super adorable. Like, let's try a lisp, like, you know, so talk like this. I don't know. I'm like, you know, I think he was just trying to change the image of Karen. And I was like, you know, so we cut my hair and the whole, whole thing, you know? Um, so but when you're talking about um, the evolution of the character, yeah, I mean, look, for Karen in the early 80s, girls were seen as objects, objectified. Um, and I'm talking, this was before Molly Ringwald, you know, before she came out, there was even like Jennifer Jason Lee, we were, you know, that character in Fast Times or even Phoebe Cates, like that was, she was an object of desire, you know, and Phoebe actually played an interesting because she was like more the American girl of like, yeah, I'm hot, but, you know, I'm, I'm tougher that way. Like, I don't care, you know, um, but women were not looked at, looked at. There was always like there was they were pretty and like looked at that, looked at that first and then. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're smart, you know, that kind of a feeling. It was just different. And by the time I got to Better Off Dead in the mid 80s. You know, all the John Hughes films came out where we now had a centered um, female character. Like she is, she was the main role of those films. That was the first time girls had, uh, with Molly Ringwald, what I think was exceptional about her career was John Hughes gave her the opportunity to be the focal person in the story. We got to know her. We got to know her emotions. We got to see that she's a full human being. And we'd never, ever, it was almost like she was like John Cusack in, in Better Off Dead. Like she was the, poor girl oh you feel bad for her you know um but when I wound up doing better off dead I was like wow I finally get to play a character that is a girl role model and there weren't a lot out there you know there were strong girls but I what I liked about Monique is that she won your heart um by just being uh she was a, a likable character and she was capable. <laughs> she was capable. She's capable. She could fix a car and do things and like, you know, and move and ski. She was athletic. And uh, I really like that. And I think that is, I was very proud to be able to say, Oh, wow. Like I could tell kids go watch that film. You know, you will, you know, that will be something, you know, you'll, 
look upon in the future. Maybe you'll go, oh yeah, I want to be somebody who's capable. And guys have told me they are, they loved Monique because she, they, they were looking for a girl like her because she could do a lot of things. Yeah. And that's fun. Savage Steve Holland had such a um, unique way of doing films. His, his films are, stand above everything else. I mean, there's, there's a stamp that he puts on them. I'm, I'm kind of curious what he was like to work with as a director. I mean, did you, did you get a feel for what he was trying to do? Cause I mean, I got to admit at times and when you're filming that movie, you had to think, I don't know what the heck he's trying to do here. I trusted him. I knew, I knew, you know why? Because Savage has a, a great heart. And I knew, like, I didn't, John probably had another image of what was going to happen, but I was like, no, this guy gets it. He gets the core of what makes Better Off Dead great is that there's a part of Savage that it's like, I, I'm going to say, like, gets the core of America in the sense of wholesomeness. He values, I think there was kind of a 1950s part of Savage, like that. There's a center that is very wholesome and he can be really, uh, he's really smart and very, and can do jokes off things. He gets it. Um, but it is core. There's a wholesomeness. And that's really, um, it's just part of who he is. And I knew it the minute I met him. I mean, I, I was telling someone about this. Um, when I first met Savage, uh, I came for my audition for better off dead. And I was in the, the lobby and I was like, I was needed some water and, and I saw this guy in the hallway and like, I said, oh, can you grab me some water? You know, I'm, I'm first, you have like, you know, can I, do you know anybody can get, I'm about to go into a meeting. Do, is there in water? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. And he got me some water. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And I can, this beaming young guy, like you look like an intern and, and I'm like, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'm about to go into this meeting with this director. Do you, have you, have you heard about somebody named Savage Steve Holland? And it was Savage Steve Holland. <laughs> and he said, um, uh, that's me. <laughs> I'm like, well, guess I'm not going to get this job. I say, very good, but thank you. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, blew it. Totally blew it. Um, just ask the director to give me some water. I have no idea what this is going to lead to. Um, but yeah, it was so, uh, he's unassuming, you know, and that's the thing. The minute I saw him. So while we were shooting this film, the, the, the things that I definitely knew were different than any other film I had experienced was one. He laughed while we were working. Like he laughed at when things were good, we got feedback. So that man meant we knew we were doing well. And he also, um, he enjoyed the process so much because it was his first film. Whereas obviously directors who direct a lot are, they're just working against the clock. I mean, they have to like, we got to move, we got to move here. We got to move there. So they're It's hard for them to enjoy it as it's happening. And so you don't get a lot of feedback. You go, okay, we're doing the next scene and, you know, I'll give you time to prepare and, you know, maybe make some suggestions, but he actually enjoyed every minute. So I knew that the film was going to be, great and you know what even if somebody didn't like it it still was great it was a it was so funny to us to all of us who did it we really had a great time doing it but also enjoyed what he did and so to this day like I mean I when fans love it I go thank you for getting it saying so thank you for you know having room in your heart to get it because you can't have a closed off heart if you love this film like you you have a big heart End of story. End of story. I, I, I've always felt a connection to this movie because in the summer of 86, I was working at a, 
a video rental store. And I was the only, I was, it was a small one and I was the only guy there. And we had two copies of Back to the Future and two copies of Better Off Dead. And the copies of Back to the Future were always checked out. Like you could never get it. Um, later on, I found out it's because the pizza place down this down in the same strip mall had a copy of it permanently in exchange for that we got free pizza. But that's that's a whole other story. <laughs> so people would come in and they'd be like, "Do you have Back to the Future?" I'm like, "No, we don't." I said, "But take this movie." And I gave him Better Off Dead. And I'm like, "If you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it." And I never had anybody come in and say, "I don't like it. I don't want to pay for it." Everybody just was like loved it you know what else can i what else can i rent you know and then yeah have you seen last american virgin <laughs> <laughs> well now you hate me right <laughs> well i guess you will throw it at me when you're done with that well i mean you so- always tell people watch last american virgin first then watch better off dead because you'll end up it'll be fine you'll forgive me hopefully <laughs> well i mean savage must have enjoyed working with you because i mean i, th- I- didn't he want to bring you back for crazy one crazy summer? Then you did come back for uh, how I got into college. Yes. Um, well, with one crazy summer, we did shoot a scene. Um, I was really, uh, it, I was so much, it was so sweet that he asked me to come And Basically it was the end of the movie and I was walking by with another guy and waving to John Cusack. Oh, nice. Like, Hi. Right? And John was like, what? Um, so that was the end, but they, they have, he had to cut, Savage had to cut, but he always regretted that. He was like, I wish I could have kept that in, um, but they had to cut for time. And um, so then he asked me to come for one, uh, yeah, uh, how I got into college. And again, I thought this role was hilarious. I had to play a mom and I was, I looked like I was, a, you know, 21 years old. 20, maybe. Yeah, 20. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it that. I'll get definitely, <laughs> let's, let's go to 20. Let's get over, over 18. Um, so I'm not a child bride. Yeah. Um, wow. Is that a funny part? I, I'm, I'm trying to like unload um, the main character to a college because I want to spend, I want him out of the house. I just you need the room. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we need the room. And it was at the time when that wasn't more common. It was the beginning of that kind of attitude of like, oh, please just let him leave. He's, we, we can't keep this, take him, please take, take this kid to college. Cause uh, I need the space, you know? Um, so yeah. And I, again, loved working with him, love working with Savage. He's yeah. great. And speaking of that, that's what was amazing about this new book that I have, because I told Savage, um, I decided to write a better off dead tribute book. And for those who don't know, First of all, you go see the film first, then get the book, because then it'll make all sense to you. Um, but I wrote it because no, there were never any special features in making this book. And I mentioned to Savage, I said, I'm going to write this book. And I actually mentioned to all the cast, like I said, I'm going to write this book. Um, and I was like, you know, I didn't know if people would be into it or if they didn't, you know, you just don't know. I mean, you, you do a film and you don't know how other people feel about it. And everyone was excited, but Savage was blown away. Like he was like, I have been waiting for this moment. Please <laughs> let me send you stuff. He sent me so much. And I am so grateful because this Better Off Dead book is called The Excellent Comedy of the Last American French Exchange, Babe of the 80s. Just look up Diane Franklin book, okay? <laughs> and it also says it's the tribute a Better Off Dead tribute book. So you can look that up as well. Um, but this book is in my heart, uh, in my heart. Loved writing it, loved meeting people. I have 
podcast. I have like a, I interviewed, you know, Curtis Armstrong. I have an interview, live interview. I mean, I, I haven't released it. It's not something I'm, I, I took information from it, but even for me to have been able to ask him questions, go back in time and do that was phenomenal. So maybe at some point, you know, if, if he was into it, I would release it, but just some amazing interviews. Yeah. How does he feel? I mean, I, I know, I think everyone pretty much knows anyone who's, who really follows the 80s knows that Cusack has never really um, embraced, embraced <laughs> better off dead, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious about the, the rest of the cast. I mean, how does Curtis feel about it? Curtis loves the film. He loves it. Um, he might, I, I don't know how he, if he's, He's actually, no, you know, he's never been exhausted about talking about it. He's always been grateful to the fans. Um, he has a book out and he's got a you know, chapter on it. Um, so he loved it and he loved working with, on it. And he even, when I read his book, I was, there were things I didn't know. Like we, I had forgotten, we had a meeting, a, a reading and he said, oh yeah, we all jumped into John Cusack's uh, convertible or something. And we drove to this restaurant to eat. And I, I don't even remember that. Like I was like, <laughs> okay. And he's like, I was sitting next, you know, these girls, Beth and, you know, Monique. And um, so I'm glad he, he wrote that. Cause I, I was like, oh yeah, I don't remember that. Cause there's so many things. Um, but he loves it. Um, Beth, uh, Amanda Wiss loves it. Like, would I even talk to her about it in a heartbeat? Uh, we would do all three of us certainly would do a if you brought it back, like Monique and Beth and you know Charles Demar grown up, we would be there in a heartbeat because it's just so delicious and so fun. Yeah. Um, and then Aaron Dozier was is very he was so excited about this book. I, I he also loved the film. Um, uh, Damien Slade, who played the paper boy. Loved it. Like, I mean, he's grown up, but still, I mean, he's the paper boy. So yeah. Know. Yeah. No, he's iconic. God, I would love to see a movie like this. I mean, it's, it's sort of been the trend now for the last 10 or 12 years to, to, to either do a, a reboot or a sequel to some of the eighties classics and better off dead seems like pretty ripe material for, for bringing some of those characters back and just having some fun with them. Would you, would you be open to a project like that? Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I, I've talked to Savage about it a little bit. I think, I don't know where he's at uh, he wants to do one and i don't know if he if it's where he's at with it i have to talk to him but certainly um oh absolutely in a heartbeat yeah. like how fun and my feeling like i mean at a certain point i would even write a script because i've been doing so much writing i and i've not that i'm a writer writer i would certainly have uh you know other writers look at my work but certainly just to get it done because i mean honestly at a certain point everyone's busy so it's uh, who's going to do it <laughs> the person who cares right yeah uh so it'd be great to bring it back on a streaming service kind of like they did with cobra kai you know just kind of reinvent imagine it in a different format it doesn't have to be a yeah. movie it could just be a even a limited series would just be a, a fun thing to do you, yeah with monique and uh and beth and all our kids yeah yeah um being down the k-12 right like just you, super you, fun you sell yourself short as a writer i i mean i i, I just rolled through your book i mean it was it's just and um it answers so many of the questions that that fans would have of everything you've been in i mean you really address it all i mean it's it's hard to when you read that come up with questions that you haven't already covered <clears throat> thank you i i mean my i certainly um when i write i write from a perspective of what i would want to read 
and what I would want to know and how even my, the way I set the book up, um, I wanted it to be where for me, like I like a book that I can go to any chapter and start reading. Like, you know, I don't want to have to read from the beginning in the preface and know, oh, okay. So I, I found that if you do it that way, people will go back and read things if they are interested. So um, I tried to do a chapter on every character just because I think we all have someone we identify with, right? Like, oh, I'm the Beth or I'm the Charles DeMar. Or, I'm the Ricky, you know, <laughs> like, you know, who am I? Um, and, you know, the characters that are in Better Off Dead, you might say somebody's a bad guy, but even bad guys have their reasons and their, so it's kind of interesting when I wrote it, I, I'm not going to define people's just, you know, like, you know, this is the jerk and this is that, but we, yeah. but we do in life. We have in the past, the past generation used to do that very quickly, you know, Oh, that's the jerk. And, um, and that's the nerd. And we did that and it, it, it we identified, but today, today's generation, they don't do that. So yeah. when I did it, I was like, well, I'm, I know I'm writing to the older generation, but also I'm not ignoring the new generation because honestly, we don't want to have that negative head. So I was trying to be careful and how I wrote, not for anything more than just respect. Yeah. Just be respectful. I, when you were talking about the character, Roy Stalin, um, you called him something. I, I think of him as the villain of the movie, but you, you called him something much nicer. I don't know if it was, you called him a ski bum or something. And it took me like 90 seconds to realize who is she talking about? And then I'm like, Oh, Roy Stalin, of course. Right. So yeah, weird. weird. Um, yeah, no, because again, like you say villain and you know, we are so used to in stories, good guy and bad guy, but that's a, um, that's put in our brain. Remember, yeah. like, you know, you know, we all have it's it's an and actually, you know, it's actually more of like an American way of thinking. Americans have good guys and bad guys. European is like full circle. You the good can be the bad and the yeah. bad can be the good. So it's kind of just a different head. You, you could sort of see in some ways American theater evolving in that direction, though. When you when you watch some of the series now that, that people binge, you I think the characters are a little bit more. You know, even when you look at a series like The West Wing or something like that, you know, like an iconic series. I mean, all the characters there were there were no true villains or or angelic heroes. I mean, everyone yeah. had their faults. And that and that took a while to happen since the eighties. It wasn't the original way things were written. I think it was perhaps. Um, I think perhaps originally it was economic because it was easier to go, well, we're going to, if we, nobody wants to be this, so everyone wants to be this. And so if we, and then people are going to sell this to these people, like who wanted to be the good guys and the heroes, it was easier. I think it was based on that. But then what I, what I'll say is that today, I mean, it's wonderful. Like you've got, it makes all like the, the superheroes, even the, the character, Marvel characters, whatever the, you know, the, the, all the different characters are much more human. And because of that, I look at it and say, all right, like you could say some people are just born, you know, bad, but then there's also so many people who are obviously nurtured bad. And so you, you have to look at a person and say, you know, what, how is this person seeing the world? And when you see how the person sees the world, um, then you start to understand, okay, well, maybe, maybe they need either, I'm not saying you tolerate bad behavior, but you, but you start understanding that we're all the same. We all, it's all how we're treated and it's all how we, we take in information. So I do, I will say this, I think it's really fascinating is as a, as a writer, um, 
one of the things I've learned is that you might think, you know, you write it, you might write a character and um, even like with Better Off Dead, all these characters, you, a lot of people you cannot change. As an example, Ricky, (laughs) (laughs) you cannot change Ricky. Ricky, the poor guy was raised by a pushy mom. That's all he knows. And unless he went outside of his comfort zone to learn how other people are, it's like all he can do is he rolls model off what he was raised with. So it's kind of fascinating when you think about like everybody's been raised in a certain way, but how, how many times have you looked outside your own way you've been raised to see how other people have and maybe what they learned that you didn't or they were given that you didn't and then perhaps change some things but that's a book that's a whole story (laughs) (laughs) that's that's another movie (laughs) i I know you're still a hard-working actress today and it seems like you get to work on with your daughter a lot who became a filmmaker i'm just kind of curious what projects are coming up uh for you that we can look forward to Oh, thank you for asking. So, okay, first of all, because you mentioned my daughter, something funny. She does a podcast called, which is on YouTube now, and it's called um, Sid S Y D and Olivia Talk Shit. Okay, that's her. <laughs> so much for that motherly thing. Uh, yeah, it, that's the that's the podcast, and uh, she asked me to be on it recently, and the episode hasn't aired yet, so it's probably it's in season two, and so I'm. I was just really happy that I got to be on her show. That was just like one thing that she's doing. And, uh, and Sid is Sydney Heller. That's her comedy partner. And I recently was just thinking, I mean, I've done all this acting and then Olivia started to do comedy and she connected with her comedy partner in high school. And I thought, wow, like they are, they are on track. Like they have been, they've done series together, like on the internet, they're famous on TikTok. They're under Sid and Olivia. They're really, really, really working hard and they're spending a lot of time together. And I thought, wow, like just having the opportunity to be on the show is it's like a moment in time. Like she could jump to a series and, you know, it could all change in a flash. So I was really grateful to be on the episode. It was like, Oh, I get to work with my daughter. (laughs) You just never know. Did she ask any questions you didn't see coming or well, it was the the uh, episode has to do with um, astrology. And so um, I'm giving her some astrology uh, thoughts, which is kind of funny, like I sort of doing predictions and that. So it's kind of funny. My background is um, my I, I, I always take it with a grain of salt, but my um, mom used to do charts. So I know like I was raised kind of knowing about that. So it was, it's just a very fun episode and, <laughs> and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I giving that to her, but um, so I did that. And then I also did a lovely short film, which is now I think being submitted to film festivals all across the country. And it is called falling up. And um, I saw the screening with Olivia. She came and she was like, Oh mom, you, this was really like great role. Like you did a beautiful job. So I'm really proud of it. It's really a cool movie. So I, I mean, whenever something comes up, I usually post it on my Instagram or my Facebook uh, or Twitter. So people can find out what's going on. And then I'm supposed to do another movie in November in England. Um, And that's, I, it's fascinating. It's like horror, but it's spooky. So, um, I like that. Yeah. So, what, what, what attracts you to the horror movie genre? I mean, cause I mean, that is kind of a, I mean, I, and I think I told you, via email, you. I don't, I don't watch your horror movies because I, I'm so susceptible to nightmares period. 
Like, Duh, yeah, yeah, I completely <laughs> get that. I, I, here's what it is. I, I like horror because for me, that's where the drama is. To me, like, oh, you do a, like a cop show or something. It's that's a lot of exposition. Like, you know, I saw him on Tuesday in the, we were in the, we were in the, you know, I was down the hall, like in, you know, room 217 when he came in with a, you know, knife and he, it's a lot of exposition. To me, the horror films are where the, you get real good emotion. And so as certainly for now in my career, um, even though I did Amityville 2 when I was younger, uh, first of all, that's just a rite of passage as an actor. I just feel like you as an actor it's so exciting and so good to do a horror film because you start understanding filmmaking uh, a lot because you see special effects makeup the how the music affects it um it's really and the tone and the feeling on the set that the director sets up is very different very specific and you get a lot of room in a horror film to act there's a lot of you you've got time where it's not like you know uh let's get it done I, because you're not waiting for the light, right? <laughs> Losing the light. <laughs> it's, it's three o'clock in the morning and you're shooting, but still. Um, but I, I really like horror because, again, for me now as an adult actress, um, in my later years, that's where the drama is. Like, that's where the heavy roles are. And I mean, I did Amityville Murders um, in 2017. I think I did that. And it can't, I, or 18, maybe it came out in 18. Um, and I was blown away. I, I got to play Louise DeFeo, who was actually, sadly, I'm sad that I even had to do this in the sense that it happened, obviously, um, that, that she passed away because of the real life murders. But what a gift it is to be able to play someone because that's, you, you I get to pay, pay tribute to the person. So um, yeah, that's what I, I like horror that way. I. I'm not into the horror where like you saw my, if my, you saw me decapitated and my head goes <laughs> flying and blood comes out of my nose and, you know, um, claws rip into my face, you know, uh, that's not my style. So I don't do those films, but I, I like spooky, scary, um, susp suspenseful horror. Yeah. So that, that makes me, I think it's kind of more exciting, right? Still not going to watch it. because I, I, I remember the last time, last time, when I watched that John Cusack did about some hotel room, I, it took me like four days before my, my dreams returned to normal. <laughs> no, just watch Bill, watch uh, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures instead. Just skip the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I just showed that to my wife for the first time uh, last week. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're oh. going to think. Cause when you first see it, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little off and, but she loved it. She thought it was fantastic. Oh, that's not, that's not, yeah. Again, like, boy, look, think about every film may not hit with each generation. You know, it's some things hit, some things don't. What I really like about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures is that they can show it in high school. You know, like oh, you're in that, yeah. you know, when you, we you know the, or the days were like, you know, okay, the substitute teacher's here. We're going to show a film and you can, and all the kids are like, yes, we can do nothing today. And they're like, okay, we're going to watch Bill and Ted's like, yay. You know, so to <laughs> me, um, I, I'm so glad that that film exists because kids can have a great day. <laughs> And then they do a paper on Last American Virgin in college. That's good. Yeah. That's how well, they take it. You, you would have been great if you had been cast as Joan of Arc, which I know is what you were. Yeah. I'm just saying, I, I can totally, and I can totally picture you as as Mozart's wife and Amadeus too. I mean, I oh, thank you. Two <gasps> roles that I wish you'd gotten, but uh... oh, it would have been amazing to do the role of Costanza. Um, 
but I, I, it's funny. I, I mean, it would have been a totally different take, but it would have been, it would have been amazing. And I, it's, I mean, I do have my audition tapes. So at some point, you gotta I put them online. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They're so incredible. Just what an experience just to have that, just to be, those of you who don't know, like I auditioned for Mozart Amadeus, uh, the movie um, Amadeus and the Oscar winning movie, which won like the most Oscars of ever um, as the role of Costanza Mozart's wife. And boy, what an amazing audition process. What an amazing film. And I got to work with um, Milos Forman many days. Like we worked so many days. So it was great to meet him and Saul Zantz. So um, amazing. Yeah. That, that leads me into um, our traditional final question here at Stuck in the 80s. Um, we like to think of our podcast as a time machine. And I can give you a seat on the podcast time machine to go back to one day or one event to witness it or change it. So theoretically, you could go back, you could use this seat to go back and change it so that you get this part of Mozart's wife. But I'll leave it up to you. What time or event would you go back and watch or change with the podcast time machine? Okay, I have it. I figured it out. <laughs> okay, are you ready for this? So although I would love to go back in time and get that role as Mozart's wife, um. I would never have met my husband. I probably would never have done better off dead and I would never have had my kids. So I can't, I have to let that go because I would have loved to do it as a, as an actress, but in the big picture, my life is so much more fun and so much more. I, I, I would have, I'm, I'm just, have, it's much more fun. I don't know. I can tell you it, it's, it wasn't maybe a, a list, but boy, it was, it, it had a great life. So that's first, but are we ready for this one? Lay it on me. Okay. Why would I, what would I change? I would like to have been in, and I know this is weird. Bill and Ted face the music as the wife. And why Ooh. that one and not bogus? Because that one would have been such a thrill for fans. And my daughter, Olivia, auditioned to play my daughter. And imagine if that had happened. If wow. I was brought back and she was brought back as Keanu and I's daughter, that would have been an amazing wink, wink, nod, nod to all the fans. Like it just would have been phenomenal so I'll, I'll trade that that story and thank you for asking that question because that I hadn't thought about it until just this second and I went of course and Kim and I have actually talked about this Kimberly Hates who played the other princess and we were like why didn't that happen and so there you go it's happened now through oh, you <laughs> thank <good>. you <laughs> well I can't take all the credit the podcast time machine does uh on the miracles on its own um, Diane, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Um, 17 years in the making uh, since we started this show, but uh, I couldn't think of a better occasion to do it for for the 40th anniversary of Last American Virgin. I hope everyone gets a chance to go and watch it again and, and see it now that they've had your added perspective to it. I think they'll, they'll see a, a, an amazing movie that stands the test of time. Um, just to let you know, if you do love Virgin, um, my second book, uh, is called The Excellent Curls of the Last American French Exchange, <laughs> Babe of the 80s. That book, 
focuses on virgin. So that is the special feature that maybe, you know, if you didn't, if you see the movie and you want more information, it's got things that's never been seen before. And it, it's been out for a while, but you know, that film is like you, when you're ready and you watch it and you want more, that's the book. So excellent curls is the one to get. So excellent. All right, there you go. There's a little 40th anniversary surprise there. So thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Thank you, Steve. A pleasure. A pleasure to be on the show. There we go. Diane Franklin, what do you think, Brad? Oh man, I that was fantastic. Like you say, it's just like you're hanging out on the, you know, on the couch having a drink and chatting about 80s movies, which is, you know, pretty much what we'd call a Thursday around here. <laughs> I, I liked her answer for the podcast time machine. Yeah, that was interesting. And I I actually I totally respect that. Like I don't want to mess with the space-time continuum too much. Yeah. No, you I know. get it. But it does make you think cuz when you read her book, she talks a lot about that audition for Amadeus. Yeah. And when you think back to that movie, which I know fairly well, and you plug her face into it, it works. If she would have been great. Absolutely. But that's the way it goes. And I I will say, um, I'm sorry, no, Jane Weedland is Joan of Arc. (laughs) That's just how it is. She would have been good. I'm just telling you. Um, and I, and I, I, if you see the video, I happen to see the videos that Steve shared with me. I love the fact that her phone case is a cassette tape. I didn't notice that. You can see that when she texts her husband. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, we do have the we do have the entire video of this interview and I'll put we'll post it eventually on YouTube. The other thing I think that stands out and even she mentions it, this is a movie that had a very distinct soundtrack. Yeah. Um I will say when she says it's the first movie to use popular teen music, the Beatles might have something to say to you about <laughs> that, but uh I do think that this is one of those points where Golden and Globus kind of move, were kind of first movers in the market to a certain extent. Not unlike when we talked about um, Breaking, you know. So they've they've come in and they've licensed all this music that, you know, maybe not everyone has quite caught on with yet. So you got some Police, you got a couple of Cars songs, you got uh, Human League. There's an Oingo Boingo song in there that I've never heard before. Uh, oh, better luck next time. Yeah, uh, Whip It is in the in the soundtrack. There's a U2 song, which is pretty early for U2. Journey, Blondie. There's a lot of really good music in this movie. Yeah. My criticism would be that unlike a John Hughes movie where the, where the soundtrack really is or feels more organic as part of the movie, I feel like in, in Last American Virgin, it feels a little less fluid. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And the other thing I'll, I'll mention, if you take the time to see this movie, you could almost watch it with the audio off just to see the 80s fashion. Yeah. Like, it's a little exaggerated. That's okay. But, like, I mean, come on. Uh, Gary going to deliver pizzas in his sleeveless T-shirt with the bandana around his <laughs> neck. Like, oh, my gosh. It's just note perfect. <laughs> Nobody wants to see you or I dressed like that. If that guy rolls up to my house with a pizza, I'm, you know, locking the door. (laughs) Something, something extra anchovies. Get out of here, kid. It's got some cringy moments in it, like any sex comedy that's 40 years old has. Sure. But, um, and the use of drugs is a little, 
makes me feel, probably made me uncomfortable then. It still does today. Well, you know what makes me uncomfortable, Steve? The, the Seckies. Prepare to qualify. Ah, it's time for Stuck in the Arcade. You didn't think hey, this was going to happen. <laughs> I know. I thought it was dead. I come not to praise Stuck in the Arcade, but to bury him. Uh, but I'll put the shovel away. It wasn't. It was only mostly dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and you know so much. <laughs> we asked people a few episodes ago, if you really want this arcade segue to stick around, email us. And I think we were hoping for 10 emails. I think we got probably... 20 or 30 so i think we're gonna keep it yeah we'll hang on to it fine <laughs> make, make us <laughs> talk last about time i try and suggest a change around here Jeez. anyway you know how this one works uh, we didn't actually have a challenge that episode we the challenge was to email us what you did so we will play a snippet of a arcade uh, machine from the 80s if you get it right you're entered into the drawing for a postal friendly bottle opener oh you know what? I might throw in a copy of Diane's book, too, this this Ooh, time. Nice. Just to welcome it back to the Seggy family. Oh, sure. And then, plus, I, I read it, and I read it on Kindle, like, in two days. I, I just okay. I just roared through it. It was just... Yeah. It answers every question you want answered. Nice. Um, so, pay attention. Here's this week's Mystery Arcade Sound. If you know it, email us at podcast at sit80s.com mm. ah, too much sweet and low and tune in a few weeks to find out if you're a winner <laughs> please please tell me now please please tell me now hey it's time for please please tell me now this is the uh, segue where if you have a question for us you know what to do just uh, send us an email at 3 in the morning Put PPTMN in the subject line. Yeah. And we'll ignore it until we're <laughs> desperate for material. No, that's not true. We Actually, we'd love getting these because it's a good chance to talk about something else. Half the time I forget that it's a segue and I just answer the question and reply back to them. And then I'm like, oh, shit. I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, this week the question comes from Paul in South Dakota. Do you want to read it? Nothing would please me more, Stephen Q. Spears. Hey, gang. It's Paul in South Dakota. First, I say ditch the stuck in the arcade. It was a cool idea, but it's run its course. Read the room, Paul. Okay? Read the room. Now that I have your attention, please, please tell me now. I'd love to hear where some of the former stuck in the 80s co-hosts and frequent guests are now. For example, there was one lady who called during the first hundred episodes or so. She always had really good stuff, like some weird New Year's Eve party MTV thing from New York. Whatever happened to her? And other frequent guests you've had on the show. Thanks. Paul in South Dakota. I think he's talking about six. Yeah, I remember six from my early days as a listener. Back <laughs> I, before I made the show. I don't remember. So I guess she was a listener who started. I think back then we had a line that you, a phone number you could call and leave a voicemail message. And so she uh-huh. used to call and leave these really long voicemails uh, in a real heavy Northeastern accent. I, I, I don't want to specify that it was necessarily New York or Jersey or whatever, because I, I have no linguistic uh, abilities to be able to tell you, you know, regionally where she came from. But all Steve knows is you talk funny. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and so she would pop in from time to time and tell us stories. I think maybe we had her live a few times. OK. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember her calling in. And actually, I remember that New Year's Eve party story. Yeah. So 
what happened with her was it's been it's been like ten years at least. Ten. Fifteen, maybe fifteen years. I mean, I've almost been on the show for ten years. Oh no, you have been because almost, yeah, for sure. So six got mad at us for some reason that has been long forgotten by myself, and had just pretty much disappeared. We used to get some occasional cryptic email, like whenever we referenced her, I wouldn't be surprised if she writes back after this show. But we haven't heard from her in about you know fifteen years, I guess. Wow, well that's that's a good memory to be able to. Harken back to well, she was one of the first first kind of external personalities on the yeah. show. So yeah, other guests, frequent guests, uh, Kathy Wass. She was a guest and a co-host of, for a few years. She's running one of the public libraries back in Tampa Bay, I think. I think nice. I saw that on Facebook the other day. Um, Stephanie Hayes was a frequent guest and occasional co-host. She's a columnist now for the Tampa Bay Times. I think her column has some name like "Stephanitely." <laughs> that's that's cute. It's some. And, it's some. You know, it's some. Play, I don't. For. I don't read it. It's memorable. Uh, Chase Squires. Ah, uh, Chase, our our boy Chase. <laughs> he was a frequent guest host in the early days. He was there for the Miami Vice show and um, a couple others. He's semi-retired and he lives in Ecuador now. We hear from him quite a bit. He shows up at the monthly Zoom happy hour uh, parties with our patrons. Yeah, uh, Chase is living the expat life. He's got it all dialed in down there, it seems like. You met him, right? You met him in Vegas? I did, yes. One of my uh, fondest memories is of him passed out on the beach <laughs> at the concert. He he wilted like like the the wicked witch, just <laughs> yeah. like, you know, what a world, what a world. <laughs> yeah, like there's a linen suit over there on the sand. Oh, Chase is in it. <laughs> uh, Jeff in Cuba. Um, our Navy friend from Gitmo in Cuba. He retired from the Navy. He has a civilian job. I think it's in Virginia. Yep. Some, you might have heard his voice if you listened to the last episode. Yeah, that's right. He was on the last episode. And we're hoping he does more contributions. Uh, Jen with one N. We haven't heard from her in a while. She she still lives in the tippy top of the northeast section of the U.S. I saw her last year in person. Me and wow. the wife, we saw her. Oh, in, that's right. We were up there and we stopped by and had lunch with her. We still hear from her often. We just haven't had time yeah, to have her on the. Have email with her. I email with her now and then. Yeah, it's just it's hard to coordinate times to record these days because we're all so scattered. So, both physically and brain. So I think those are the major ones. Anyway, hey, we love your PPTMNs. Feel free to send them to us. Any topic, just remember to put PPTMN in the subject line. Uh, email address: podcast at sits For Chuck Coverly, that's letter S, letter I, letter T, number eight, number zero, letter S. Punctuation mark, period, letter C, letter O, letter M. Podcast at SIT80s.com. Yeah. Uh, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Wherever you go, sweet and low. More people you know, sweet and low. It's part of my life. For over a generation, sweet and low has been helping millions of people cut calories. People who want to get more out of life. Wow, what a cake. Sweet and low? Mm, I've been baking with it for years. Get more out of living. Hey, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to say thank you to our patrons. Uh, as you know, the podcast is listener-supported through Patreon. And you're able to join for, I think the minimum is $2 a month. And, and for $2 a month, you support the podcast. You get invited to the monthly Zoom happy hours. And we're starting to do patron-only podcasts. I think we have two, yeah. epi- two episodes are done. Yep. 
and we blog there some. You know, yeah. there's some additional content that you get yeah. as a supporter of the show. So it's a lot of fun. We have uh, three new patrons to talk about. Special thanks to Brian Patton, Proto Man, and Gerald Shivers. I hope I got that right. So a reminder: Diane Franklin mentioned her social media accounts. You can find her on Twitter. She's uh, at Diane Franklin eighty. She's actress Diane Franklin on Instagram, and I think you can find her official page on Facebook. I think it's Diane Franklin five five six. Nice. So, hope you enjoyed our chat with Diane. Definitely check out her book. Go back, rewatch some of those movies that she did in the eighties. They're classics, all. And remember, come back and join us again next week because Brad and I are here, hopelessly stuck in the eighties. in the 80s is now on patreon if you'd like to support the show go to patreon.com slash stuck in the 80s podcast special thanks to check battery daily for our theme music and thanks for listening <laughs>